Monday, July 26th. This is your LA podcast. It is a hot and humid morning, as we will talk about. I'm Scott Frazier. I'm here with Samantha Helu Hernandez and Matt Tinoco. And we are, Matt is, is remote. We're doing a uh, two-thirds in-person, one-third remote recording this morning. How is everybody this Sunday? I'm hot and sweaty. Yeah. <laughs> I walked here. You walked here. Yeah. I live in East Hollywood, but it's like a 30-minute walk. And I was like, let me just walk because the bus, it's going to be the same. So, What bus uh, would you even take to get over here? The two? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I decided to walk. And then I didn't realize that it was going to take me on Marathon, which is all uphill. Um, the so, name preps you. They're like, yeah. you, will, <laughs> you will be fucked up by the time yeah. you're done with this huge hill in the middle. <laughs> and I was like, wow, great way to make an introduction. Just show up to your house, like covered in sweat. <laughs> Matt, where are you recording from? Uh, I'm in a closet close to the uh, close to the Canadian border. That's where I am. In. I'm in northern <laughs> Washington on an island called Whidbey Island. Uh, my partner's family. <gasps> oh my God. Do you know Whidbey Island, Samantha? Yes. Do you know that that's where Practical Magic was filmed? I did not know that, but I can. Yeah. I, it, it, it makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah. I love that movie. Me too. I'm so obsessed good. with it. And when I went, we went on a like a North, the Pacific Northwest road trip back in September to visit a friend. Um, and we stopped nearby and it was it was so magical. It's a very calming, nice, I mean, it's not only coastal. So what I like about this part of the country is that there's coastline everywhere and also forests. So it's the best of two things that I really like. And it's cool and not, you know, it doesn't, it's hard because like if you look out to the, um, like from where I am right now, if you look out east, you can see like pyrocumulus clouds out in the distance of like the fires burning. Um, but fortunately, the, the the wind blows it all away from where I am right now. So you can still kind of just pretend it's not there and be relaxed without thinking about anything else. Unlike the, I guess we'll get to it in the LA story in a second, but, uh, or I guess not the, 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 the American West story, I guess. But um, yeah, I mean, it's nice. I mean, I'm, but I'm back in a little closet and talking to people on Zoom, which is, you know. We should play some Aaron Copeland underneath this American West story. Um, the closet looks very nice. N nice nondescript recording area. Uh, do you want to roll into your story first, Matt? I mean, I just kind of continuing off. I mean, more or less, my partner and I drove up here because her family rents a rents a rents a house on Whidbey Island every as a as a new tradition to uh, for for a couple days as a as a summer vacation. But as we were driving up um, on the five, well, first I think I said this in an earlier in an earlier podcast, but we were originally planning to take the Amtrak. Unfortunately, due to wildfires in Southern Oregon, bridges burned down. So there's no current through Amtrak, through line Amtrak service from Los Angeles up to Seattle. So we could have taken an Amtrak bus from Sacramento to like Klamath Falls in Southern Oregon, but we opted just to get in the Prius and go. But as we're driving up, I think it's just the currency of like it's very easy. I mean, not that anybody can like forget about climate change when it's like sticky in Los Angeles. And obviously that's because the ocean is warmer and, you know, you're going to get a more subtropical climate into the future. But like it was just seeing all the empty reservoirs from the five freeway, like the water levels are low, particularly in North State. And like in particular, there was this one 
I don't know if it's called Lake Shasta, but it was in the Shasta Trinity National Forest, which like has had a pretty significant burn event in the past year. So it's like you have the empty reservoir matched with the, um, or like the mostly empty large reservoir matched with the burnt trees everywhere. And I was just like, ooh, this is a very, you know, this is the like, we're going to do like Blade Runner 2050 vision, but like it's actually right here right now. And I'm looking at it right now as I'm like driving in a car. Well, just, I guess, contributing. I think it was uh, the, I think it was the New York Times had, they were showing like uh, satellite, no, maybe it was the LA Times had had satellite photos of reservoirs throughout California. And you can see the drought from space, which is super depressing. It feels like, um, you know, the, the last drought that we came out of not that long ago took a long time to become extremely severe, like years and years of no rainfall. This one, by comparison, has ramped up so quickly, and it's, it's kind of terrifying. Yeah, I was just at the farmer's market on Monday at the Santa Monica Farmer's Market. It was my first time there, actually. I was on assignment um, doing photos. Uh, but yeah, a lot of the farmers are like really struggling with the drought. There was one um, particular farm that let, it was their last day. They're not going to return until the fall oh, man. because the drought has like really impacted their crop. And just like certain items that they're not able to grow. I think it was like certain peppers um, just because it takes up too much water. So it's only like the farmers that have wells yeah. in their farm that are like sustaining a little bit better. But yeah, yeah it's it's like affecting every part. <laughs> and they're, they're like the farms that have water rights that go back however long and they just get to like take up everybody's water. And then if you're not one of those, then you're just screwed, yeah. I guess. yeah. I think before, I mean, we can move on in a second, but the one of the things though, because there was the the Pacific Northwest heat dome that had a very pronounced effect everywhere up here. So a bunch of plant life just got fried. And that includes agricultural crops up here that are not built to endure 115 degrees for a couple of days. So I, I don't think this has been accounted yet, but like just anecdotally, like uh, in my partner's house or my partner's parents' house and then and then her brother's house, there's like her brother has a bunch of strawberries or had a bunch of strawberry plants in the backyard, but um, they're not they're They just didn't make it. And I think that's a you know, I mean, so not only is there, you know, the pre-1914 water holders are just going to hog all the water, but they might hog all the water for crops that cannot endure just sustained heat. So I get more more to come, I'm sure. But uh, yeah. Samantha, do you have a LA story you want to go into? Well, last week, to be honest, I took it pretty chill because <laughs> I feel like I've been nonstop. Like, I think everyone's kind of overcompensating when things started opening up. Um, but the week before that, we had some friends visiting from the East Coast and we went, like, we went, we had like an LA weekend and it was really nice to play host again and like show yeah. I love showing people LA like my LA and um they're from the DMV uh Maryland specifically and there's I feel like there's this like kindred soul connection between LA and the DMV sometimes because I think like DC is also kind of the place where people are like everyone's in politics and mm-hmm. everyone's fake yeah just like in LA they're like everyone's in film and everyone's fake but then when you meet the people that are like from here or people from the DMV they're like really amazing people um, so that was like a really fun thing. But then we went to the Sequoias, to the Southern Sequoias camping for a week. And for sure, I mean, I saw like 
the there was like a forest that we had like driven through last summer and I think we left like right on time before the fire started the it was like the sequoia complex and now like it was like miles and miles of just like burnt forest and maybe that's not necessarily an LA story no. but like that really impacted us we were I was like whoa like I really like felt it in my soul just like it was like a graveyard of trees there was even a little sign on one of them that was like I was 200 years old, you know? Wow. And just to think like even like our grandchildren probably won't see that forest yeah. as it was before, you know, just like a year ago. Um, so yeah, I mean, recover. we enjoyed our camping trip, but that was, yeah, that was like really intense. Yeah. God, the 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 climate change stories are, are just hitting so close to home these days. And it just feels like it's everywhere. It's so hard. I feel like it's so hard to just... Um, you know, operate like things are normal, just like live your your normal life. Now it's very difficult to go out and do normal things without encountering the the evidence of of climate change everywhere. It's so heavy. It really is. Like it's just a heavy burden to to walk around with. Yeah. Yeah. It felt super heavy. Um, so <laughs> I guess that's kind of like my LA, LA, California story. Um, just, yeah, it's become like more and more apparent. Like for sure, like we went to the Kern, the mm -hmm. river is obviously still rushing, but it's lower than it was before. We, um, usually camp by this Creek. The Creek is like way lower as well. Um, and everything just felt like super dry and dusty. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was just like a different, a totally different vibe just even from a year ago. Um, but my my LA story is actually pretty close to home. I um so I went out to I was going somewhere in Hollywood yesterday doing some um like where we were doing our housewarming party and it was wild. Uh my partner Sarah works for uh council member Nithya Raman in CD4. She actually just went on um, like her pre-maternity leave because our baby is really close now. So we're like gonna, you know, have some people over, do a little housewarming party. And I had this really wild experience where I think I've talked about on the podcast before um, with our podcast host Emeritus, Hayes Davenport, who now is also working in, in Nithya Raman's office. I had gone out to this one particular homeless encampment there uh, on at Berindo in Hollywood with Hayes a bunch of times trying to like help people get into housing, trying to like put their stuff in storage. Um, and it was really wild because like I, I had known from talking to them that, oh, wow, like they just, they got all these people into Project Room Key and now there's like, there's no encampment there. And they did it like in a complete opposite. I mean, as far as I can tell, a complete opposite way of like uh, what, Joe Buscaino of the 15th district wants to do what Mitch O'Farrell did in the 13th district at Echo Park Lake, uh, which is cool. But then when I, the thing that I want to say for my LA story is I was going by this particular intersection uh, yesterday on my way to the store and they had all of these planters out on the like literally where the the tents used to be like exactly what um Venice Stakeholders Association did in Venice they like put all these concrete barriers out there um and so I asked my partner like did you guys do this did you like put these out there and they're like 
no, that wasn't that wasn't us. So like what it seems like is some of the homeowners there who are like really mad and were like, you know, going to the news and being like ADA restrictions, blah, blah, blah. Like this is it's impossible to do wheelchair access here have now gone through and put their own property like cement blocks and things like that blocking the sidewalk because they don't want they don't want they want to make sure that unhoused people can't get back there but it's just like to me it was just such it's so emblematic of how fake all of those concerns are you know like they're like um we want to make sure that this is accessible but then we're also just going to block the sidewalk with other stuff it's just it was it was wild to me um especially because i had some like pre-existing knowledge of that homeless encampment so i was i was i was kind of shocked but also it it's the probably the most expected thing that could have happened i just wasn't expecting it wow <laughs> do you know if there uh, i i there is a permitting system for sidewalk encroachments i think was the word but the vast majority of those encroachments are not actually permitted and there was an attempt two years ago, I think, to quote-unquote legalize a number of them. But it makes me wonder if the appropriate, I think it's through the Bureau of Street Services permitting process was was done for for these, uh, you know, ADA. If they're in violation of, that's the whole point, is that they're not supposed to violate the ADA. But if these ones are in the middle of the sidewalk, as you say. It's kind of of the same as in Echo Park Lake, too, where it was actually the council office that put that fence up there in such a way that now those sidewalks are not passable if you're in a wheelchair. Um, so I don't know what's going to happen. I, um, you know, my, my partner's out on leave. I have no idea what's going to happen uh, through the office uh, or, or whatever, but I would expect that hopefully they'll say you can't do that. It's public. It's a public right of way. They shouldn't be able to just it's like the boulders in San Francisco a couple of years ago. You know, you can't just like dump a bunch of shit on the private, on the public right of way and just be like, we own this entire block, stay away. I don't know. Anyway, that was, that was my LA story. Very, like I said, very close to home for me because, um, because I know Hayes and I know my partner have been working so hard to get people housed there. Let us get into, The news of the week, we have a lot of continuing coverage this week, uh, following up on previous stories that we've been talking about and tracking. The first one, a topic near and dear to all of our hearts, is (laughs) COVID-19. The thing that I really wish that we could um, maybe take a longer break from talking about, but we can't. The pandemic is not over just because you hold a big reopening ceremony and give out big checks with trolls and minions at your side. That does not mean that COVID is fully in the rearview mirror. I will continue to reference Gavin Newsom's appearance at City Walk and Universal Studios because because I love it. It's my favorite image of all time, uh, the governor hanging out with minions and trolls. Um, so... <laughs> What what is going on with COVID now? We have a an increasingly worrisome spike fueled by the Delta variant, which is as as we've talked about before, significantly maybe two and a half to three times more transmissible than previous, uh, or at least than the original COVID uh, variant that that uh, sparked the shutdowns in the first place a year ago. 
Uh, now we have about 3,000 new cases every day, including 20% of, uh, of that total being people who are fully vaccinated. What are your guys' thoughts on Delta and the new surge so far? Matt, do you have anything that you've been tracking? Um, I suppose the, the observation that I'd want to draw out right now is that if you remember back to a year ago last July, uh, Southern California and LA County was experiencing a, at least by the case numbers, a similar number of cases to where we are right now in 2021. It was somewhere between 2,500 and it peaked in the, in the high 3000s of daily cases for Los Angeles County in July of 2020. And, and so while there are a comparable number of cases, the only, I guess, I guess the, I guess I don't want to say comforting because none of this is comforting. It's very discomforting. Sort of reality, though, is that there's just fewer people dying now than there were in July of 2020. So although that that our our case numbers, and there is still a lag and we're still early in this as LA County Public Health is now using the word surge again. This is is another surge of cases. The, The deaths remain under about a dozen a day. It's anywhere from like four to a dozen, which is still very unfortunate, particularly when you look at it's still people who are over 80 who are still making up the majority of the deaths, people who have been eligible for the vaccine for, by now, more than six months. Um, and P- and, and I, I'll get to that in a second, but, like, it's just, um, I don't know. It's I mean, it goes back to kind of, I guess, what we said last week, that this is now a, a an endemic disease. This is now just a disease that is going to be with us, although it, it doesn't have to be if we could fully vaccinate everybody quickly and, and minimize the amount of virus mutation that it goes on. But yeah, I mean, I guess that's just the one the one thing that does bring a little bit of solace, knowing that there is a high level of vaccination out there. Uh, fewer people are actually dying of the illness. And I mean, that could be because of the vaccines, but it could also just be because it's a different, like it's a, not to just cite, you know, the, the Twitter Academy, but like somebody was referring to it as COVID-21, whereas the virus has, the Delta variant appears to be much more infectious, but potentially less potentially just less deadly for those who get it partially because of vaccine but uh, but also just because it's it's we're now nearly nearly 2 years out into the evolution of the virus which is just you know we get a, a yearly flu vaccine because the flu evolves influenza evolves that much during a year so i i know that's just what i'm that's just what's on my mind i guess which is which is more or less how i am, am interpreting what to say about covid-19 covid-21 <laughs> covid-24 whatever Samantha, how are you feeling about the latest surge? I think like, I mean, personally, I'm a little bit concerned even yeah. for vaccinated yeah. people. Um, just because, I mean, the new number that came out that it's like 20% vaccinated people are testing positive, right? Yeah. Um, so that like, yeah, that definitely gives me a little pause. Um, I think I was a little bit more confident than maybe I should have. Um, in the last few weeks, you know, and like now I'm back to like being really strict about wearing a mask. I'm not really comfortable being indoors at bars. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really happy. I mean, Lex just reported that story about the bars that are going to start right. um, asking or are already starting for a vaccination proof or like 72 hour negative test or like a negative test within the last 72 hours, which I'm hoping that more places. I think that's that going to spread. Yeah, right? yeah. Because if not, it like it. Definitely, it's like very nerve wracking, and especially because we don't know like 
for sure, if you're vaccinated, how likely it is that you could pass it on to someone that is more vulnerable. So I think that for me is definitely like, I'm backtracking a little bit and taking a lot more precautions. And honestly, I feel like we probably should have been wearing masks this entire time. The whole time, time right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, the the reopening came at such an interesting point because we really did have, I mean, it's it's hard for me to find too much fault with the with the state's reasoning. I mean, they did sort of accelerate things at the last minute and we're just kind of like, okay, we're sticking to this um, to this date. But also it seemed like it seemed like I, I don't know. I, I guess the 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 counterpoint is they they could have definitely incorporated some sort of um, of of more aggressive measure to increase the spread of or increase the uptake of vaccinations before and let that dictate the the reopening date. But um, that wasn't really something that I had my eye on at the time. I do feel like though with we, where we are now and this like 20% number coming, that's, that is specifically an LA County number. 20% of the new cases are among uh, vaccinated people. Famously, the CDC back in the spring sort of stopped tracking these breakthrough cases. And that was a decision that was criticized because it seems like a, a valuable data point just to know who is getting the disease that is also vaccinated. I think they had some potentially some fear that uh, I don't know, maybe that 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 data would would increase the resistance to getting vaccinated among other people, but um, without having the knowledge of of who is getting infected that that really has a dramatic impact, I think, on public policy decisions. But what I want to say though, uh, Matt, to to your point earlier about whether or not Delta is, more or less deadly, I think that one of the things that has been said a lot by epidemiologists and public health officials in the lead up to this current surge is that we will never see that they were basically saying a couple of weeks ago, we'll never see a surge like the ones before because we just don't have enough unvaccinated people to overwhelm the hospitals the way that, that it happened in the winter. And so there's kind of a, I think there's kind of a question. We know that the deaths are a direct result of the um, the hospitals being overwhelmed, or at least they were in previous waves. It's like you have this cycle of cases go up really high. When cases go up, hospitalizations follow. You run out of um, people who are uh, able to use ventilators. You run out of ventilators themselves. And then the deaths start really skyrocketing. Um, we had all of those really grim moments and when we were deep in the pandemic of uh, hospitals saying we have to choose basically who lives and who dies. We have to choose who gets a ventilator and who doesn't. Uh, and that was really what was leading to a lot of people dying. That's been the case all over. The Delta variant, I would say um, one argument against it being less deadly is uh, is the example of India, which is where the Delta variant arose from. And, and it was extremely deadly there with a population that was only minimally vaccinated. Um, and so here we have a lot more people who are getting less severe, uh, less severe cases because they're vaccinated, but they are still getting the disease. And the, 
And I think that one of the things that I, I hope that we start getting information on soon is whether or not uh, vaccinated folks are actually, we mentioned this last week, whether or not vaccinated folks are actually able to transmit the disease to, to other people is, is still kind of, I think, as far as I'm aware, an open question. But with the percentages of people who are vaccinated who are contracting the disease, in my mind, again, not being a, a virologist um, by any stretch of the imagination, that in my mind um, does raise some concerns about whether or not those people are then spreading it to others. Um, yeah, I, certain, yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say I probably shouldn't say that in a in a public setting here, or what I said earlier. But I mean, the flip is that a few months ago there was great waffling as to whether or it was. Yeah, I guess you know breakthrough cases are very very rare. Uh, people who are vaccinated won't get ill, which I think experts would have balked at that claim to start with. But at least in in the sort of public messaging, when when we were all told it's fine to remove your mask indoors, it was because it seems extremely unlikely that vaccinated people can transmit the virus or or even become infected. Whereas now it seems, um, I mean, as you just said, it's the it's still a work in progress, but it seems increasingly less likely that vaccinated people can't. That it seems increasingly less likely that just because somebody's vaccinated that they are not going to 100% for sure transmit the virus. Yeah, I mean I I always feel like um there's a there's a big disconnect between like um if you're if you're like a a, a scientist, right? And if you're a member of the general public, like I feel like there's a big dis- disconnect between how scientists think that they're communicating out information and how it's actually received by like members of the media, members of the public, people who are are not as well versed in these issues, myself included, as as they are. Like when you have all of these scientists saying, um, you know, based on what we know right now, this, you know, we're not we're not actually going to have uh, hospitals become overwhelmed. Um, it's uh, this disease is not ever going to become as deadly as it was in the past. And for them, the emphasis is on based on what we know right now, like that's a highly contingent statement that could change in the future. Um, but I think that there's a tendency in, you know, when you're when you're not in that field, when you're not of that expertise to just be like, to focus on the second part and just be like, oh, that is a declarative statement. I can latch on to that. And you miss how heavily contingent that is on just a lot of unknowns, you know? So um, the situation has continued to change so dramatically throughout the pandemic that I would, you know, you would hope that we would all be able to, um, to <laughs> you would hope we would all be public health experts at this point, but of course we're not. <laughs> Um, so we're we're going to keep tracking that. Pasadena, it, it was worth noting, uh, vaccine man- mandates have started spreading and the call for vaccine mandates has started spreading throughout the country. President Biden has said that the federal government is not going to step in and do that. So it is up to local governments, which uh, Anthony Fauci, the, the president's chief medical advisor, has said uh, he wants more local governments to do in Southern California. We haven't really seen that, but Pasadena is the is the first local government here to say that they're going to start requiring public employees to become vaccinated. Hopefully that will be followed by, uh, by others. We want to move on and talk about another story that we mentioned last week. 
This was the uh, emergency discharge of 17 million gallons of raw sewage into Santa Monica Bay. This story has developed a bit more this week. Um, We have uh, now LA City Sanitation. They put out a really interesting press release saying that, you know, because of their heroic actions, they actually stopped possibly hundreds of millions, possibly more than a billion gallons of untreated sewage from overflowing into the bay because the headworks, the entrance to this treatment facility had been blocked up and they were able to do do this discharge in such a way that only a fraction of that that amount went into the bay. This is is kind of an interesting story now because you have um, residents in El Segundo, residents in, um, in Playa del Rey, uh, complaining about fumes coming off of the bay and like uh, uh, getting headaches and things like that and needing to relocate temporarily. And the city of LA has moved really fast to actually reimburse people. They're, they're saying, if you go stay at a hotel, uh, we'll reimburse you up to $182 a night. Um, this, is, this applies for, I think, the entire city of El Segundo. Uh, you can also get, I think, they were saying they'll reimburse you for up to $600 for either like an air conditioner or an air purification system, something like that. Um, any thoughts on the latest? I mean, this the, basically they're saying that they need to do significant rehabbing of the facility itself and they are creating an enormous reimbursement program almost overnight. It's, it's kind of a contrast with the updates we'll talk about in the South Central area where LAPD literally blew up a neighborhood um, and and there's only limited resources available there. What what are folks feeling about sewage in our water? Uh, the the thing that I'd want to, the, the specific dollar amount, so it's $182 per day, as well as meals and incidentals of up to $62 per day for each person currently residing full-time in the household in a hotel. Now, this is good until July 29th, 2021, which means that there's about 18 days between when the sewage spill occurred and when this offer expires. Now, if you multiply 182 times 18, you get a number of 3,276, which that's the, as Scott just pointed out, that's the number I want you to hold in your mind, $3,200 for what the city of LA is, more or less extending to what it seems to be the entire city of El Segundo. I mean, I, maybe we should just start talking about that right now. But uh, but <laughs> I mean, yeah, right. but the city of L.A. is putting the entire city of El Segundo up in a hotel for a couple of weeks. Unless ext- I mean, that's the other important thing, Matt, it's, unless it's extended further, it might yeah. that program might be extended even further. What is the actual um, like danger of those fumes? So um, it's like. It, all I can compare it to is the Porter Ranch thing a couple of years ago where there was like uh, natural gas in the air and people were saying like, I'm getting headaches, I'm getting, um, you know, lightheaded and things like that. So people have been saying, for example, I'm running down the beach, which you don't need to do. And um, I'm not, my eyes start burning or like I'm getting a headache. It's it's stuff like that. They're saying that the fumes from and I, as far as I can tell, 
I I don't want to downplay the the severity of the environmental consequences here because as we talked about last week, this is three Olympic swimming pools full of feces, bacteria. It's it's a bad situation. They were dumped about a mile off uh, off the coast, um, but of course then the currents just take them in whatever direction they're going to take them. Um, so what people are saying is there have been, um, they have been experiencing physiological effects on shore or, or even um, people can get back in the water now, according to, yeah. <laughs> people can get back in the water. And, and LA City Sanitation is saying that they've been testing the, the water in the bay and, uh, and the, the water quality is within state standards. Every every day since the since the spill, they've been within state standards. So that's interesting. So it's safe to get in the water, but the fumes are affecting people negatively. Yeah, and um, oh well, I guess so. Then maybe the maybe the the missing piece here is that uh, there are actually like significant parts of this facility that are still submerged. I guess in in um, either partially treated or untreated materials, like like yeah, they're going to have to spend a lot of money and a lot of time actually pumping sewage out of flooded parts of the facility because this backup was so severe. It's like construction materials and like wood and cement blocking the actual entrance. So there was significant flooding that came out this week of the interior of the facility. And it's right at the boundary between uh, between the city of LA and the city of El Segundo. So I guess what people are saying is, just being near the facility right now, there's um, there's a significant environmental impact, which LA has decided to, uh, in conversation with the city of El Segundo, probably in order to stave off or attempt to stave off a lawsuit. Um, They've just decided that the the bounds for that will extend to the whole city of El Segundo. Yeah, it's it's pretty wild. Uh, and and LA has I I mean the, just like the framing of LA is putting up everybody in the city of El Segundo in a hotel for weeks um, is is pretty incredible, honestly. Yeah, I'm curious um, what the messaging or the resources would be if this something like this happened in another neighborhood that wasn't like a coastal right neighborhood you know um would they just like tell people just just stay inside you know or wear a mask or would they put people up in a hotel if this happened you know in like south central or even like wilming a place like wilmington you know i know and that's such a good point like with wilmington being so close to to the harbor and you know we have neighborhoods that are really close to like like there was that refinery fire in Torrance you know several several years ago was anything like this done in that case like i don't feel like it was and this sort of like this sort of overnight decision making just doesn't really happen i i don't i can't think of a of a similar situation with it can you matt I mean, it's just, it, it's what you pointed out with Porter Ranch. That's the only sort of um, illusion or, or I guess parallel that you could draw, which is, I guess it's not necessary. The issue isn't so much that 
the the offer was extended, but it's just how rare these offers are extended given how often these sort of um, like industrial environmental pollution uh, events occur in in Southern California. Like there's so much industrial pollution that just occurs really regularly, both from the city or from from like the public sector, but also the private sector, like a Chevron refinery fire is a private sector thing that is supposed to be regulated. But like, I mean, in theory, that's an AQMD thing that AQMD could step in and say, well, if there's a refinery fire, you have to um, put up everybody. Like, I don't know. I don't know how the, these rulemaking things, uh, actually work, but actually I'm just kind of, you know, if I was in charge, um, but like, <laughs> um, I mean, then then you think about like, you know, versus like Exide battery recycling and like all of these, there's so many, when you start examining mm-hmm. how many, how polluted Los Angeles really is, it's not just like the air and smog, but like there's so many industrial pollutants and like the way the wind carries it, or even like as um, like El Segundo is right next to LAX and like the, yeah. the, one of the largest sources of particulate pollution in Southern California, but remember that the aircraft are not like they're near El Segundo, but like remember that the uh, the arrival path is over South Central Los Angeles, and mm-hmm. I mean even even like the um the the Delta Air uh, fuel dumping over yep. over Southeast LA County, and like I'm not I should probably update myself on the status of that what happened there, but I mean there was never a like the swiftness of reacting to environmental disasters, relatively small environmental situation, or I guess I don't, I don't want to minimize like the the effect on people in high income neighborhoods, but there are much worse things occurring in poor parts of the city every single day, and there's no notice of it given the, on, on the, the response part of the, seems seems pretty bifurcated yeah. i think i think is is what what we can say and for for our listeners who may not be familiar the the delta airlines fuel dumping that was a case uh about maybe 2 years ago now where uh residents of the city of Cudahy reported that a low flying aircraft actually uh emptied its the the contents of its um of, of a fuel tank over a residential area, including uh, an actually elementary school, and they had uh, kids who were actually uh, hit directly by by air jet fuel. And and yeah, I mean, we we definitely should follow up on that the status of that. Um, I, I mean, this story we we might as well go straight into our our continuing coverage of the LAPD bombing in South Central, which I mean, this is so the the contrast is so stark that I feel like you have to really just uh, get into the meat of what what we are talking about in terms of reimbursement for families affected by uh, by the LAPD who are now saying that they detonated far more uh, explosives than they originally told the media that they did. Um, Matt, what what is the latest on South Central? Uh, well, there's been an ongoing federal investigation that earlier uh, last week now, uh, LAPD Chief Michael Moore provided an update that said, well, there was, you know, originally there was an estimated, you know, uh, originally police estimated that there were about 16 and a half pounds loaded into the TCV, the the containment truck. Um, federal investigators have since learned more informed us 
uh, earlier or a few days ago that there were it was more likely that there were more than 40 pounds of explosives loaded into the truck. And this is because the police who were doing it did not actually weigh the substances. It was just sort of eyeballed. And now the question now now it's it's sort of well was were were those was that in policy or out of policy that sort of, that sort of you know ever ever present question when it comes to determining whether or not police did something wrong or not it's not actually the effect it's whether or not the department's policies were followed and I, I don't I, it seems unclear whether or not eyeballing explosives is within or without department policy but that seems to be what we're you know we're going to be trying to figure out now that seems to me. Uh, wholly, I mean, not wholly, but almost wholly beside the point. You are correct that it is what Mayor Garcetti, uh, outgoing Mayor Garcetti, focused on. It's what uh, Chief Michael Moore, I think, with pretty clear, uh, with pretty clear cause and pretty evident bias, are, are focusing on. Because I think, in their mind, there's I. I mean, I don't know, Samantha, maybe what you think, but I don't see any way that actual members of the LAPD are going to face departmental discipline for this. Do you? I, I just, I don't see it. We've not, we've not really seen the LAPD be willing to discipline their own folks. And they're even coming out now and saying, unless it was out of policy, we're just not going to punish anybody. Well, and didn't... Um the chief say that the reason that they couldn't weigh it like on a scale was because it was like leaking material or yes. something. So it was too dangerous. So, I mean, that seems like a pretty easy out, right? Like, yeah, it's like, well, it was too dangerous. So we had to eyeball it, even if it's not within policy, right? Like there was leaking material. And which I don't know what that I, I, I'm like, what was it leaking? I, yeah, I'm not. I, I don't know how like fireworks like homemade fireworks work but yeah i didn't know they had like a liquid in them so i don't know it's interesting because yeah, like, like they don't, don't have it's not tnt they don't have like nitroglycerin they don't yeah which i mean uh famously dynamite and stuff like that sweats exp like quote-unquote sweats explosive material um not I'm not in, an explosives expert, but neither is Chief Michael Moore, as he said repeatedly during this press conference, and he keeps being quoted as though the things that he's saying are um, are correct. But like, yeah, no. The as far as uh, as far as what the chief has said it goes in these press conferences, the fireworks contained. Um, what's called flash powder. They they X-rayed. They cut a sample of one of the the quarter sticks or M one thousands, one of the fireworks, and they estimated how much explosive material was in the the entire uh, lot. All of the two hundred or so uh, fireworks that they ended up detonating based on that one sample that they took. They haven't really given any. Uh, I don't know what could be leaking. They haven't really said that there was um, liquid contents like that, and they haven't docu they haven't shown any documentation that they have um, of that leaking occurring. Now, as far as what we do know, um, <laughs> the 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 thing that is really really confusing to me in all of this is that what the LAPD said in their most recent press conference was. Uh, 
contradictory to what Michael Moore had originally told the press, which was um, this was an equipment failure and, uh, and we had less than 10 pounds of TNT equivalent in the, in the explosive containing device when we detonated it, which should have been well within the limits acceptable for that device. Uh, this time, what he said was actually the ATF has found, the federal agents have found that uh, not only were the fireworks more explosive than the LAPD estimated significantly, um, but also that the the counter charges. So like um, these are basically like control devices that the bomb squad puts in that are also explosive. Um, they put them in there to like balance the explosion or to, you know, to, to provide some safety to this controlled detonation. Those devices that the LAPD introduced to this situation were also significantly more explosive than the LAPD thought they were, which is kind of like, how is that even possible? These are like the control devices. These are the things that the LAPD, at least in theory, is putting together and should have a really comprehensive knowledge of what they are. Uh, they're not like unstable. They are, they're supposed to be um, assets for controlling the situation and the LAPD couldn't even do that. So while I feel like what the, the conclusion we're barreling towards here is the LAPD being like, this was in policy and now we're going to change our policy. You know, it's the thing they always say, we're going to change our policy we're going to change the way we train people and this is never going to happen again. And then the, the goalposts just constantly get moved further and further away. There's never any accountability. Um, but I mean, but what that doesn't stop is that I think the conversation that we should be having, which is one around uh, negligence and abuse of public trust, you know, like, and that's what I was saying, Matt, like, I feel like, there's there's this conversation about policies, but then who really gives a damn about the LAPD's policies at the end of the day? Like, this is a situation where they went in uh, and they blew up people's homes, businesses. Uh, people are are like homeless indefinitely because of this. And and we talked on uh, the first time that we talked about this about a residents being red tagged. Now more have been red tagged people have these injuries that they're recovering from. And um, and the, the question of LAPD policies, I can't imagine... Can, like, can you just imagine being Michael Moore and going into South Central and, and trying to explain to like elderly Latinx renters, like, oh, what we did met our policies, so I'm sorry that your home is destroyed. But we we did everything right according to what we're what we're saying it's just like this is why of course nobody trusts you right <laughs> yeah and i'm curious because i did um i think it was on an la times article there was like a i believe it was an la times article but some one of the people in the department was quoted saying that like they've done this before where they like detonate on site um and I'm just curious, I don't know if you guys know, but like what other neighborhoods has this happened in? He says, uh, so Chief Moore says, and I, 
I personally don't don't know how any he provided again no evidence that this was the case. He says that they have logs for every time that they've used this device, and it's been used forty times, and it's been used in neighborhoods all over the city, from the Palisades to wherever. He says all this in the press conference again. He didn't provide those logs for the press to review. They asked him, "How much did you put in it those times?" And he said. He didn't know off the top of his head, um, but also that they only had um, they only kept logs of how much those con- uh, control devices they put in the uh, the counter charges. But now you know, like we know that they can't even measure those accurately. So how much good are your logs if if uh, you know like there there should be a significant amount of doubt as to that? I think um, and and without the ability for journalists to actually look at the logs themselves. I don't really feel comfortable saying, yeah, they've definitely done this in the Palisades and it was totally analogous to what they did in South Central. Oh, yeah. And I'm super curious. Um, I hope a reporter's on already on this, but like going to those neighborhoods specifically where they detonated and asking the residents how that experience was for mm-hmm. them and what the protocol was there and if there are any discrepancies between how they treated people in those neighborhoods if it really did happen in the Palisades versus in South Central. Like, I'm really curious about what the experiences were for residents there versus, you know, a working class black and brown neighborhood. Yeah. Well, speaking of discrepancies between well-off parts of the city and poor parts of the city is that this past week was, uh, we saw for for really the first time public statements on the part of uh, elected officials about their their assistance in in terms of hard dollar amounts for the assistance, the public assistance that's going to be provided to families affected by this. Uh, on Thursday, Eric Garcetti and then Councilmember Curran Price said that they were going to give uh, $2,000 checks to 26 households affected by the blast, um, which that's a total of $52,000 that would be coming from the Mayor's Fund for Los Angeles, which is a nonprofit organization headquartered at City Hall that uh, it operates at the behest of Eric Garcetti or whoever the mayor is. Um, and now, so there's that. But Councilmember Price also said that his office would be creating a $1 million emergency relief fund that would provide assistance for families impacted by the blast, which is supposed to help with things like repairs and housing and and like a, like up to $10,000 of financial assistance to, to two dozen pre-identified households. But... Um, one, I'd want to draw a contrast between a $2,000 check from the mayor's fund to uh, a, a, a $3,000 something dollars to everybody in El Segundo. Um, mm-hmm. And two, I mean, well, I guess there's lots of, lots of things. Like, let's pause on that. To literally everybody in the city of El Segundo versus in the case of the mayor's fund, I think they said it was two, yeah, two dozen pre-approved households. Which is just, it's just, I mean, if that isn't, you know, I mean, it's just so obvious. I think that's, that's what makes it so, I mean, really just gross in terms of watching how it's, it's, it's watching our government make a very clear calculation about litigious risk and who do Mm -hmm. we think is going to sue us and who do we think is going to have the resources to litigate, uh, with an impact on our, I guess, city checkbook and they clearly and and i i mean i just i don't know how those calculations are made but clearly like this is the status quo it's where porter ranch gets to be relocated by the way chief michael moore lives in porter ranch 
Um, and, and meanwhile, then you have, you know, the city's poor and working class who are just told to, well, good luck. Uh, here's, here's a check from an ambiguous nonprofit fund, by the way. Uh, and then maybe you'll get some other help using, you know, funds that, you know, by the, it, the, the million dollars from the part of Councilman Price's, they were em- clear to emphasize in the press release, as Alyssa pointed out on, on, online, is coming from the sort of the community reinvestment fund. That was the, the, the quote unquote defunding of Los Angeles police last year. So, you know, just this is money that came from the police department. So it's all okay, but it's not okay. And that's kind of that I wanted I want to talk about this this notion that we're we're taking money from again the LAPD was never defunded the the LAPD had some amount of the budget increases that they were scheduled to get be deferred not even eliminated and some of the money from that went back to individual council districts for these so-called transformative projects now, uh, and and that was based on that was based on need. Um, so a lot of low-income districts, like Council District Nine, which includes South Central, where Kern Price is the the council member, uh, got the most money from that. Now we have a million. Do you know what the total amount that Council District Nine got? I don't. I don't recall. It was uh, twenty-one million. Okay, so so now you have. of that total going to mitigating the harm from literal LAPD negligence. Like, so like straight off the bat, we are cutting down the amount of actual positive, new, affirmative uh, work that you can do in Council District 9 and just pouring it straight into covering up for a, a... an enormous LAPD fuck up. Like there, there's really no way to to get around that. And then uh, you have city council member Kern Price and Mayor Garcetti saying, um, this is the police paying for this. It's not the police paying for this. It's the residents of South Central paying to be abused by LAPD. That's, in my mind, the only way that that can uh, truthfully be be framed. Uh, that, that money should be off the limits for this kind of use and they should absolutely have to put up money from the general fund from from the LA general fund I mean they're going to they're going to have to settle for an enormous amount of money anyway it's it's I think probably the most likely situation where did the for the residents of El Segundo where did the money come from what fund or what part of the budget that's such a good question it does not say online as far as I've been able to say, which means I think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Matt, I think the most likely situation is it is coming from uh, either the general fund or or uh, something that is a set aside for settlement funds or something like that. Yeah, I, this, I can't say. Yeah, I, I, I didn't see any any evidence about where that was coming from. It definitely was not coming from like at least as far as I'm aware, it wasn't coming from one of these special set asides for CD11. You know, the richest district in the in the city is not having to say use their or their special funds from the LAPD for this purpose. Yeah, and I'm curious if um, Council District Nine, if they already had some kind of predetermined budget as to what to do with this 
community reinvestment fund. And if now they have to like cancel something, right? Something, right? Unless like they, it was just sitting there and they weren't doing anything with it. But like, I'm sure there was some kind of plan as to what to do with that money and how to like reinvest it into the community. And like on top of um, these specific residents, like losing their livelihood or their homes or having like significant damage or injuries, um, the entire district is now also going to pay the price. Yeah. And, um, and one yeah. of the one of the things that they planned on doing that with this money was uh, a universal basic income pilot. Um, so just like directly paying checks to people and and yeah, like if that's impacted by this million dollar payout in the the LAPD bombing case, it's like instead of you know, it's just like that doesn't it doesn't wash, you know, instead of getting, UBI payments to people to help them survive in an area that is experiencing gentrification and pushing in from downtown um, that has historically suffered from um, from incredibly negative impacts of of political neglect and uh, and racism. Instead, you're like just mopping up after the latest in a series of of mistakes, mismanagement, and abuse, and and that's. Um, it, it's just the, the color of that is so different from uh, from having an actual leg up or ladder provided for people who need assistance. It's it's just it's just so different. Um, we are going to move on to our last topic for today. We haven't really done this in the past, but given the nature of the discussion to follow we do want to just provide a warning that some people may uh, want to be, be careful listening to this discussion. We are going to be talking about um, sexual assault, abuse, racial abuse, and, um, and just be, be cautioned if you listen to the following segment. We are uh, going to be talking about the trial of Ed Buck, a, a Democratic donor who was uh, charged. He's, he's actually currently under federal trial and still to come has another trial under the LA County District Attorney's Office uh, in the deaths of two black men in his home, the overdose deaths of two black men in his home. Uh, Ed Buck has been charged with a variety of uh, distribution of meth charges, including two resulting in death, the operation of a drug premises, and uh, and enticement to travel across state lines for the purposes of prostitution. Uh, I actually went down to the trial one day uh, this week on on Wednesday, I believe it was the, the fourth day of the trial. Um, or sorry, the fifth day of the trial. And um, the mood is very, um, you know, the people are experiencing a lot of, a lot of emotions. Family members of the victims are, are present. Um, it's really, it's really intense. I, I, I'll go through the, the um, facts of the, the case that are being presented right now briefly before we sort of talk about what is is to come. Um, so Ed Buck, for those who haven't been following this case or, or, or need a refresher, was somebody who was uh, formerly a Republican political operative in Arizona. Uh, he worked on the recall of Evan Meacham, 
the state's uh, the state of Arizona's racist governor in in the eighties. Um, but by the time I get to Arizona, that that governor. Uh, for, then after that, he moved to West Hollywood, where he lived for several decades, became a, a significant Democratic donor, donating about half a million dollars over the course of the last decade uh, to various candidates. Very well connected in Los Angeles in particular, in, in West Hollywood, where he lived. Um, he, he was prominent in LGBTQ political circles, and including being a member of the steering committee for the, the Stonewall uh, Club. He became notorious in about 2017 when a, uh, a black man who his name was Jamel Moore, he died of an overdose of meth in Ed Buck's apartment. Details for that story came out over a period of weeks and months. Sheriff's deputies were pretty slow to investigate what was actually happening there and then DA Jackie Lacey made a decision about a year after the fact not to pursue any charges. Um, this was cast by uh, Ed Buck and his lawyer in the media as a friend of his who did not manage his life well, somebody who was addicted to meth and, uh, and arrived at his home high on meth. Ed Buck cast himself as somebody who was always there to provide a helping hand to struggling people. Uh, for a variety of reasons, these claims really did not hold up to scrutiny, including the fact that Jamel Moore had written in his own diary that uh, for years before his death, Ed Buck had gotten him addicted to crystal meth. Um, and in other witness testimony, surviving victims talked about Ed Buck basically having a fetish for injecting men, specific, specifically black men, with uh, crystal meth. And in the trial, the evidence has, that has been heard has revealed a pattern of predatory behavior centering around, uh, centering around basically a, a, a racial fetish, finding vulnerable black men including his second victim, Timothy Dean, who died in the exact same manner as Jamel Moore about a year and a half uh, later. This, this story has been really traumatizing for a lot of people because it has called up a, a lot of the most painful uh, distinctions in Los Angeles culture between the politically connected and the politically unconnected between uh, a, a wealthy white man and extremely poor uh, black men. You know, we have, we have black gay men who have seldom found advocates in the city, including as, as most of victims of Ed Buck were those struggling with homelessness and drug addiction, um, people living um, more or less on the fringes of society in in Los Angeles. Uh, and it does seem to be the case that Ed Buck selected those men for that purpose and that that was part of uh, a sexual fascination for him. So um, being at being at the courthouse, even just for a day as I was 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 very heavy. We heard testimony from 
um, from Buck's drug dealer. We heard testimony from uh, one of his victims who Ed Buck told that uh, that this was one of his only white victims and Ed Buck told him that he didn't do quote unquote party and play. That's the the uh, use of meth and it's basically a subculture for use of meth and, and sexual contact in particularly the LGBTQ community. Um, you know, listening to people break down on the stand as they talk about the way that they were treated by him, non-consensual admission of drugs, the um, uh, jury have been shown videos of Buck manipulating uh, men's penises while they were passed out um, from GHB, the date rape drug, and meth that was administered to them by Buck has been really just incredibly... Um, moving and horrifying. Um, I don't, how, how closely have, have you both been following this story? I've, I've read the, the mainstream press as well as, uh, Jasmine Canick's reports, which it just, it is, I don't know. I mean, it's just listening to your, your description of what you, you witnessed in the courtroom. It's just, I mean, I, I, you don't immediately have words for it. Um, but obviously it's, um, the thing is everybody, it, it was not like a, I don't want to say it was an open secret because I think, I think the amount of people broadly who knew who Ed Buck was is relatively small, mm-hmm. but among people like it's Jasmine Kanick has done a pretty dedicated job of making sure that there is at least a public record of Ed Buck long before he was actually arrested. And, and it wasn't a, a, wasn't an unknown thing. And, and there was a clear pattern of this occurring over and over and over again before the, I guess, political mechanism decided to actually prov- uh, file charges, which is where we are now. And I guess, I mean, the only thing that I can think about is, I guess, kind of more or less to what we said a, a couple minutes ago, is that it's when it's that political mechanism determining who is or isn't I guess a a risk to prosecute or litigious risk where where they evaluated Buck, knowing that he was at least a a moderately influential man. Um, although I think, as Scott, you pointed out uh, offline, is I think that is a claim that is worth scrutinizing. Um, but he 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 made he did a good job of making other people perceive him as at least moderately influential, mm-hmm. which was just enough to to get him over the line. Particularly given that his victims were. People who our political mechanism just it does its finest to just completely ignore and completely erase to the point that he was ignoring and erasing people. Um, but it took multiple events for for something to happen. Only, but also with public scrutiny from from Ms. Canuck. So that's I don't know. I mean, I used the word gross earlier, and that's it's, it's sort of it's just really foul that this is how. Um, I mean, it's just a very raw exposure of who does and doesn't "quote unquote" deserve justice in what well, even like liberal Los Angeles, right? Isn't that where it's, we're supposed to be good on this stuff? But we're not because somebody who understands how power works and how to sort of grease the wheels of power for his own um, just just to, so he can slide through it uh, without accountability, like. 
the same the same uh our our i guess system is just very vulnerable to that and i think we see that all of the time and like it is not uh really publicly considered how to sort of guess uh eliminate those those gaps that's not even gaps like this is just the way it, it's designed to work or i mean not explicitly but like he's exploiting things he the way the way buck was able to maneuver like this for a very long time uh is he's exploiting well-known sort of holes in our system although i think i i i don't know if my language is exactly right here but um i don't know that's that's those are what i that that's what i think about with this case I mean, I think also there's like so many layers here um, because as you were saying, like there does need to be scrutiny about like how politically influential Ed Buck actually was. I know there's that um, New York Times magazine, like really comprehensive piece that actually says like, yes, obviously $500,000 is very significant. Not most people do not have that to like give away to campaigns, but like compared to like other donors, like it's pretty insignificant, Mm -hmm. like in California. And also like he was living in like this rent controlled apartment, like his net worth wasn't as much as like people maybe, or maybe he wanted to present, you know, his wealth, Um, which I think it's not to undermine what's happening in the power dynamics. I think it just shows more that like, it's less about like the way the media created this idea that it's like this political meg democratic mega donor who's like doing this super abusive stuff, but really it's more so just like a housed privileged white man who like is targeting unhoused, a lot of unhoused and like vulnerable Mm -hmm. young black men. So like this dynamic it can be happening a lot more often than like just a political donor, like someone, you know, with a lot of power doing this. Like there is a power dynamic inherently already in like, like who he is just as like a white man that has housing and has like some wealth, you know? Um, So I think it's like interesting. It's important to like interrogate those power dynamics too, as opposed to just being like some, super wealthy guy that like has all this political power it's like he has power inherently just like being born like a cis white man you know he do- and he does and he, does. he he absolutely does and and knows how to use it one of the things that i keep coming back to in this case is he has what seems to me pretty clearly to be a fetish for power um i mean there was a lot of there was a lot of talk in the trial about um, a testimony to Ed Buck being impotent. He would have these, um, you know, days long, uh, so called party in play sessions with folks, uh, and people were generally speaking testifying to not being able to actually have sexual in- intercourse with him. He's in his sixties. They were saying, you know, he has. Uh, such and such um, ED medi- uh, yeah ED medication um, so like he was getting off on he was getting off sexually on um, touching and handling men's genitalia particularly when he had gotten them into a state where they were so vulnerable and 
could not control their bodily functions. Um, the it, So given that, I bring that up because given that, it seems to me that it, it conforms pretty well to the psyche of somebody who might spend as much money as they possibly could to give off the appearance of being very well connected. Uh, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's really tough. I feel like uh, he wants to give off the uh, appearance of being very powerful politically. He wants that. He, he craves that sort of lifestyle. I also think he was very well connected. Um, he was very well connected, particularly in, in the city of West Hollywood, where uh, one of the city council members, I mean, he, he had supported four out of the five city council members. One of them was his personal defense lawyer for, for a decade. And this man actually at a city, a city council meeting for West Hollywood, uh, the, the city council member who was representing him as a defense lawyer cautioned potential victims of Ed Buck against coming forward with their testimony because he said that they could be subject to prosecution for uh, crimes that they had engaged in, in particular use of meth, a controlled substance, and, um, and for prostitution. So you have these clear, um, these clear incidences of politically powerful people going out of their way to defend them. I mean, Jackie, in Jackie Lacey's case, this became really wrapped up in the campaign to get her out of office because it, it, honestly, they didn't even arrest him directly after the death of Timothy Dean in January 2019. They waited months and months for, for uh, an arrest to be made. And in that interim, Ed Buck kept doing the same thing. There's been a lot of testimony in this case towards the fact that after each of the men died in his apartment and once in July 2017 and once in January 2019, there was a small uh, hiatus followed by an immediate resumption, um, you know, like a dozen men after the death of Jamel Moore. The month after the death of Jamal Moore, a dozen men were seen on surveillance uh, coming into Ed Buck's apartment. He had total disregard for anybody's safety. He did not. He just did not care about these people. They were totally disposable to them. Did not care if they lived or died. And he was going to place one of the one of the most damning damning things to me. One of the most damning pieces of testimony um, is that Ed Buck was picking people up at the Hollywood Needle Exchange. He was going to places where, you know, unhoused people are going because they they either have drug addiction issues or, um, you know, but they're, they're trying to live their lives in a way that that is safe. And a lot of these men have testified to the fact that I didn't have anywhere to sleep. And so I, I could go to Ed Buck's apartment and in between these sex sessions, I could sleep for a couple of days. I could make a little bit of money. There's considerable evidence that he didn't always pay people who were unwilling to um, to bend to to his his wishes. Um, but they were so desperate for some amount of security, even for a matter of days, um, that they were subjecting themselves to this personal torture in in a place that Ed Buck himself called the gates of hell hi everyone this is matt just breaking in sorry for the interruption but i just wanted to apologize for the little bit of rough audio we have right here at the very end of this episode we had a technical error but look forward to never repeating it ever again 
Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you can forgive us for the last couple minutes right here. Uh, it's just, it's really, it's really despicable the way that he was treating these individuals. And honestly, whatever, whatever we think about his political power, I, all, I, all I can say is it seems like, it seems like his political power was enough, or like you were saying, Samantha, like the, the lack of political power of his victims was so great that the, the system was literally just, like, just had no care whether or not these men lived or died. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's also, I mean, I guess I haven't been following like the trial or what like the media has been saying recently, but I, I'm also curious about how they're going to look into like, I feel like it, it'll also be really easy to like try to like demonize certain subcultures and sex work and right. things like that, as opposed to just looking at like this particular situation and the abuse that occurred and the fact that like, um, there was a lot of like issues with consent obviously like like you were saying people were passed out and he was abusing them um and like just a disregard for like their bodily autonomy and self-determination um and i it's like i hope that's like the focus as opposed to like trying to demonize like a queer subculture or like sex work you know i totally agree and actually i found that really concerning about um about the coverage to date. I mean, there, there has been some coverage. I feel like a lot of it has focused on um, party and play in, in specific. So um, this particular subculture, which uh, does it need some scrutiny? I'm, sh- I'm sure. But also, I mean, one of the things that can't be overlooked in this testimony is people who, are, who exist in this subculture victims of Ed Bucks talking about this not being normal conduct within that subculture and Ed Buck being somebody who was using this subculture of uh, consisting mainly of marginalized peoples in order to find the most vulnerable people and push them beyond the limits of what they were comfortable with. Like this, this stuff about like it, even the fact that he insisted on injecting people with drugs, that is not a, 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 according to testimony, that is not a normal uh, way for these sessions to be conducted. Um, you know, he, he was insistent on controlling everything in that, in that environment because as, as one of the, the lawyers, uh, Nana Jomfi has said, his entire thing is that he is fixated on getting black men higher and higher until they can't control themselves. Um, I agree with you. Like the, the abuse is the abuse is the story here and the, the, the callous disregard. This is um, it, it's also come to light that, you know, he repeatedly refers to the men as the N-word, he calls them boy. There's an, an obvious racial element component to all of this horror and um and i think that that deserves much more interrogation than it's currently getting um so the the trial will follow up next week it it did conclude on friday the closing arguments were heard the jury is uh is convening on tuesday in order to begin its deliberations i think we we all expect that a verdict will be handed down at some point next week 
So we'll we'll recap there and and um, again a heavy discussion, but an important one. And we would like to thank everybody for listening. This is uh, LA Podcast 184. Thank you to my co-host Matt Tinoco and Samantha Helu Hernandez. We are going to be back next Monday, and we will talk to you then. Bye.